Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the G.I. Joe comics podcast with a very special Cobra Convergence episode. Now, today we are looking what I am calling Larry Hammer's best G.I. Joe comic that you have never heard of. It is Spy Hunter and Paperboy, which came out in May 2021. Now, joining me to discuss this comic, as always, it's a real American Tim. I really want to talk Joe with you. It's a real American Tim. American Tim. Ah, oh. ooh, that was that was rough. Backwards driving out of the weapons van onto the speeding highway. <laughs> I'll pretend I got that. Um, so, uh, Tim, how are you? <laughs> I am well. Uh, cannot wait to talk about this miniseries. Uh, so, Tim, shall we switch to avatar form for the rest now that we've shown our faces and proven that we've we exist? How's that sound? Sure. Engage. Okay, Tim. So today uh, we've been wanting to talk this with you for ages, and the loose theme of Cobra Convergence Seven is spies. So I thought, what better thing to talk about? than spy hunter uh, and paperboy um, yes you know we can we can leave to other people to other uh gi joe internet speakers and thinkers to um examine uh spy troops or uh the the cobra series at idw uh with it with its spotlight on chuckles a mm -hmm. spy and uh we can go right for the meat uh, as you say, the best Larry Hama G.I. Joe comic you have never read. <laughs> Which is called, uh, yeah, Spy Hunter and Paperboy. And if you're going to go searching for details for this one, I'm hoping that we're going to be Google result number one after we do this, because there is close to no information uh, out there on on this one. It's uh, fascinating to, to see, really. It came out May 2021 six issues uh, they all dropped all on the same day from dc at 3.99 each um and yeah you just log on on the day uh, and here they were six issues at 3.99 each on the comiXology website which doesn't really exist anymore so dc uh, digital first channel they were calling it um it's it's now on uh it's now available on amazon as the uh the legal accessible place that you can uh get this uh there may be other places you can find it through more nefarious means but the page official spot is is uh these days on amazon which uh supplanted comiXology and pretty much the only thing on the website uh on the on the internet that talks about uh this is a couple of tweets from Pat Brusso, who was the letterer on the series. Um, Tim, do you want to have a read of the Pat Brusso tweets? 
three years in the making and it's finally being released. I'm reuniting with Larry Hama, Wolverine, Matthew McRae Reynolds, The Mercenary C, with Michael McAllister on edits for Spy Hunter and Paperboy. All six issues released digitally June 1st. This was from May 21 when uh, the comic came out. Um, and, uh, and he followed it up with another tweet. Spy Hunter and Paperboy 1 through 6 drops digitally today from DC Comics! Two exclamation marks. 1960s Cold War spy action brought to you by Larry Hama, Matthew Reynolds, and myself. I haven't worked with Larry since Wolverine and Matthew since The Mercenary Sea, so it's a reunion of sorts. Here we go. It's a, it's a team up of uh, Larry Hama on writing duties, uh, Mac Ray on drawing, and Pat Brusso on uh, lettering. And uh, yeah, fascinating to see actually the, the letterer taking, being the person who shows up most prominently when you actually search for, for this series. Exactly what, what this comic is all about and why it exists, we can kind of speculate. Uh, Midway Games was the, com the company that made both Spy Hunter and Paperboy as video games. And it went bankrupt in 2009 and warner brothers bought off most of midway's assets so it seems very likely that these two properties were included in that uh in that purchase and uh and if if that is the case then it sort of stands to reason that the, the reason that the, this miniseries exists is some sort of trademark or ip uh or or sort of even um I, trademark or IP renewal thing, or possibly IP creation thing, because there's also a, a sort of a long and storied and fascinating uh, story in the background as to uh, Spy Hunter being made, in, you know, attempted to be made into a movie as as well as a, um, I believe, a rock property. But let's not get on onto that. We're talking comics. When when uh, when Mark says rock property, he means Dwayne Johnson. So getting into the context of, of what these two things are, Spy Hunter and Paperboy, they're both um, sort of iconic uh, sort of arcade games, really. Um, so uh, on the left there is the overhead display of Spy Hunter, uh, which was mostly a, a car driving game. And, uh, and on the right, um, Paperboy, which uh, for me anyway is the more I iconic famous game, but that might not be, uh, you know, mileage may vary um and uh that was yeah sort of this isometric is it an isometric display would you yeah. call it um of uh, a paperboy uh, sort of run you know pedaling along the road and the pavement trying to chuck uh chuck over the papers and and um uh, deliver them so uh the paperboy arcade action game was developed and published by atari games and, Mid and midway uh, it was released in 1985. The player takes the role of a paperboy who delivers a fictional newspaper called The Daily Sun along a suburban street on his bicycle. The game was ported to many home video systems uh, from uh, 1986. Tim, have you got any fond memories of playing Paperboy? Yeah, I... Um... I had access to a couple of video arcades as a kid and I grew up in the eighties and um, we would go to our local shopping mall every week on Wednesdays 
And after dinner, my mom would give my brother and I a couple quarters and there was an arcade there. Uh, additionally, uh, in the summer, we'd go to the beach for a week or two and there were many arcades at the beach. And Paperboy was one of my favorite games and continues to be when now in my 40s, I make it to uh, an arcade that has a couple old games or an arcade that specializes in old games. If they have Paperboy, I am immediately excited and like humming to myself uh, the music. <laughs> Um, I can't wait to get my hands on the handlebars, which have a really particular feel right. because of the bicycle handle grip of the yoke. Uh, so instead of a, a joystick like in Pac-Man or a steering wheel like in normal car uh, games, you have something more like the original Star Wars um, arcade video game where you can uh, wag the handles forward and back and also turn it. Um, and then there's a button where your uh, where your fingers wrap past uh, the handlebars to launch uh, uh, papers. And um, I love this game. I still love this game. I want to play this game every every chance <laughs> I get if I happen to have our uh, video games in front of me. And uh, I think I played it most recently a, a year ago. Um, uh, my wife and I were in uh, Seattle. Uh, visiting a friend and we went to the Fantagraphics bookstore, right? Fantagraphics is a publisher, but it also has a bookstore. And down the street was a sort of bar with some uh, video games. And um, uh, Paperboy is great. It's also very hard because um, you are standing and, and interacting with the handlebars, uh, the quote steering wheel sort of straight, but you're looking at this isometric angle. So there's this sort of parallax that goes on in your brain where you see the 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 sprite on screen going straight and you think, oh, well, he's going at an angle. And so you sort of overcorrect. Um, it's a little bit like if um, you were sitting in a car and you're, you were in the passenger seat and your friend were at the steering wheel, but you were driving. So you're looking at the road from an angle, a little bit like that. Um, I was never very good at the game as a kid. I've gotten a little better playing it a few times as a grown up. Um, sometimes I get the music um, stuck in my head. And oh, oh, what's this? Anyway, there's a thing. Okay. So, wonderful game. Wonderful game. And then Spy Hunter is the other uh, property in this uh, in this bizarre team up. So uh, Spy Hunter is a vehicular combat action game developed by Midway, released for arcades in 1983. So yeah, year after GI Joe hit stands. Uh, originally, the game was to be based directly on James Bond, and have the James Bond theme as its in-game music but the license could not be acquired and instead an electronic arrangement of the theme to Peter Gunn plays throughout. The uh, The object of the game is to drive down roads in the te technologically advanced fictitious G6155 interceptor car and destroy various vehicles with a variety of onboard weapons. 
Uh, it was ported to the, the Atari 2600. Uh, the, that's, that's called the 2600. Shall I, shall I do that one again? <laughs> it was. It's, it's, it's fun when a Brit says something and mm. an American corrects them. You can leave it. Uh, the uh, the Atari 8-bit family, Amstrad, CPC, ZX Spectrum, which I had back in the day, Commodore 64, Apple II, ColecoVision, MDOS, Nintendo Entertainment System, BBC Micro. So fairly ubiquitous. Um, Spy Hunter was followed by Spy Hunter 2, which added a 3D view and a two-screen split play. Uh, it had a pinball tie-in and a number of successor series of games bearing the spy hunter name uh it had a, a ness sequel called super spy hunter so uh, it had uh yeah this this sort of uh overhead kind of uh view of a of a car which the very first Grand Theft Auto also had where you're you're looking you know, down God's eye view directly down on a uh, car and uh, I think we'll touch on that uh, later on in our discussion. So um, I Spy Hunter, uh, the original coin operated Spy Hunter, uh, there was one at my local arcade at this mall. So I played it uh, many weeks growing up and my brother loved it, and uh, our our very, very good friend who lived across the street from us had a Commodore 64, and he had the cartridge version of Spy Hunter for his Commodore, uh, and cartridge games ran faster than disc games on Commodore 64, as I remember, and so we got all the Spy Hunter we wanted, and... Um, uh, this... Um, Spy Hunter is all cool. There's, there's no story to it. Uh, I mean, there's a tiny bit of story embedded because there are a couple cars that you want to shoot, or in the case of the bulletproof one, knock off the road. Uh, <laughs> and then there's some civilian cars where if you shoot them, um, if I recall for the couple of seconds, it takes them to burn and explode or get run off the road. <laughs> I think your, um, your points don't go up for those couple of seconds. So there's a small penalty. Um, Spy Hunter has uh, a, a tiny thing in common with Knight Rider, which is uh, this very cool experimental car uh, that gets unloaded from an 18-wheeler uh, tractor trailer. Hmm. Uh, in in, uh, in Knight Rider, um, it's black, and that's like the roaming base for Knight Industries. Um, and in Spy Hunter, it's the weapons van, and you can call the weapons van by pushing the button on the steering wheel. Um, the the game Spy Hunter, just as uh, Paperboy has an unusual um, control handle joystick, Spy Hunter has an unusual um, steering wheel in that it's just freaking cool looking. Like if you were to reach <laughs> into the dreams of eight-year-old boys in the 80s to come up with a very cool steering wheel um where it's got four buttons on it one for machine gun one for smokescreen one for missile and one for oil slick and another button uh to call your weapons van uh this is what uh actually come to think of it uh it looks a little like the knight rider uh looks a little like the knight rider steering wheel um knight rider premiered in 82 um and i'm not saying there's any uh there's any borrowing or ripping off here i think 
I think in the 80s, if you're coming up with cool stuff, you know, about cool cars, you know, if, if you put 100 monkeys in a room and they're all typing uh, ideas for uh, games and shows about cool cars, a lot of them are going to uh, incidentally be the same. Um, uh, did you play either? Did you have arcades? Did you you mentioned a home system, Mark? Did you have arcades, video arcades near you? Um, there, there were a few around. So in the UK, that you'd find them. It's sort of in random places, like you know, maybe like a local laundrette might have one in a corner, or maybe uh, you'd always see them like on a um, on motorway services, or if you were going to go on a school trip to France or something, and you're on the ferry across. Um, uh, the, the most exciting thing would be um, getting on the the ferry and finding the arcade room and then playing the heck out of Chase HQ or something. Um, and then there'd be yeah, that sort of dedicated arcades places and and sort of arcade rooms at the end of Brighton Pier and all of these kind of places. I wasn't I wasn't necessarily massively into arcades because um, typically you would die very quickly, and so <laughs> that was frustrating in terms of the amount of coins that you would have to get through to get very far. Um, so I was I was much more into the home computing, and I think I I don't remember ever playing Spy Hunter, but I, I definitely have played um, Paperboy. Uh, probably on the the ZX Spectrum uh, home uh, system. So in the states, video games would take one quarter, and occasionally a fancy game would take two. Uh, what did they take in the UK? Uh, I guess it depends on the time. Probably ten p would have been like early early eighties currency for for a, a go. But but yeah, I mean rapidly sort of over time it would get to 50p one pounds you know okay and then it becomes very expensive for a few, a few set, depending on the game potentially quite a frustrating quick death uh so so <laughs> yeah frustration. Now, nowadays if i if i see a classic video arcade game from the 80s uh it's just as likely to have a card swipe on it where you have to put money as credits on the card nearby at a vending machine and each credit for a game is you know actually 75 cents or a dollar and i guess i understand that inflation but part of what i love about video games is um is the tangible aspect of them in the same way that you know when i draw i'd rather draw with real tools on paper uh you know pencils markers as opposed to um, on a tablet, on a computer. Um, part of playing video games for me and why I didn't fully embrace playing them at home is uh, the feel of a quarter between your index finger and your thumb, hearing it roll and sink into the uh, coin sort of bed, um, you know, hearing the like, you know, like credit player one now available chime for whatever, whatever that game had, and then actually standing there and actually, you know, being there and standing there and feeling like maybe other people were watching if you were doing well or waiting for someone to get off the game that you were hoping to play next or, you know, the excitement of finding an arcade with uh, your favorite game that you hadn't played in a while because your arcade didn't have it anymore or getting to your arcade and there being an out of order sign uh, on an arcade game that you wanted to play 
you know, were they piping in music? Was it loud? Um, so much of this is, is a, you know, just sort of an add on, uh, a series of add on feelings for me. And in the same way that when I'm listening to the radio and just the right song comes on at the right time, and that creates a very different feeling than if I go to YouTube and type in that song and watch the video or, you know, listen to the song. Um, the experience of going to arcades and not knowing what games or, you know, our local 7-Eleven that would have one or two games in the back corner um, and, and discovering a new game or uh, rediscovering a game that you had been missing. Uh, that is all a very special feeling besides the actual mm. uh, thrill of um, playing a game. And this is sort of even separate from, because both Spy Hunter and Play Paperboy are one player games. Much of my arcade time with my brother was us playing two player games or four player games or six player games, X-Men, together. <laughs> um, and, you know, the whole feeling of, you know, the occasional like half day at school or, you know, spring break, summer vacation. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, you know, in my list of, of 10 favorite video games, Spy Hunter and Paperboy are in there. So that this comic book series exists and that it's written by a writer whose work I really like is, um, and that sort of no one knew about this comic, uh, is very strange and wonderful. Good. Now, talking of like sort of discovery of this this comic, I think it's fair to say that it didn't make a grand splash um, on uh, on impact back in 2021. Uh, Tim, when did you uh, find out about the comic? <laughs> um i think it's i think it's very possible that i saw the tiniest reference to it before it came out online and and because it was going to be uh, a digital comic i immediately filed it in the back of my brain as sort of forget about this until it comes out as a mm physical object because I don't read comics on tablets or computers and I own a store where comics on tablets and computers don't help us until they get popular and are then published as physical books. So, so effectively I never heard of this until, um, and maybe I actually never did hear of this, uh, back then, but, uh, three months ago I was in New York and I had lunch with Larry Hama and without um, pressing too hard about the continuation of Real American Hero, because I don't want to be that guy. Uh, I sort of wanted to check in on it. And I said, um, how's it going? And he said, good. And I said, uh, who's the editor? Not that I know who the editors at uh, Skybound are, um, but I have been reading um, The Walking Dead Deluxe. So I'm slightly in tune with skybound these days and hama said a name that i didn't recognize and he said i've worked with him before i said what and he said yeah and uh it's a spy hunter paperboy and my sort of my brain sort of folded and turned a little bit in <laughs> half like i'm hearing things that don't you know it's like it it's something that doesn't quite make sense right and and I'm, and i immediately thought those are two video game properties uh, and then I said, who, who was that for? He said, DC. And I thought, is this like the, uh, DC and 
Warner Brothers or DC and Hanna-Barbera team-ups, like the um, Tom King, Lee Weeks, um, Batman, Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny one-shot, or or the like the new version of uh, Flintstones and and Rough and Ready. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, and I said, wait, what was that? Spy Hunter Paperboy. And he said, uh, I said, wait, did that come out? Because I feel like I have a good handle on <laughs> if something called Spy Hunter or Paperboy comes out and Larry Hama writes it, I feel like I would know because I would have bought it and read it. Um, and uh and I think I don't remember what he said, but it was sort of like, I think so, or I don't know, or and 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 if Hama doesn't know that something has or hasn't come out, you know, keep in mind his job is to write it. His job is to, you know, when 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 books come out, hopefully he's writing the next series. And like he's definitely not going to his local comic book store to see the thing that he just made on the shelf. It's like, you know, you ask you ask actors if they watch the show that they act on and Sometimes they say yes. So, um, and I, I sort of thought, wait, was this made but never published? And then when I got home, I Googled it and told you about it. And it turned out it had been did not just digital first, which is what the covers all say, digital only. Only. Um, and so I have known about this for three months and been totally curious and puzzled and now delighted by it. And the artist of the book, Mac Reynolds, who has got this incredible style. It, um, I'll talk about that in a, in a second. But um, uh, he um, he will hopefully be joining us on a future show to talk about uh, about this project. But I mentioned to, to to him, you know, about what on earth happened with this <laughs> with with the series. And essentially, he said, "Yep, the pandemic." And you might recall that there were a bunch of uh, you know, going into the pandemic uh, early, a, a lot of the publishers essentially were were standing down um, people working on on projects because uh, because of the all you know the uncertainty of the world. World IDW GI Joe was put on hold uh, entirely for for a few months in the in the middle of Snake Hunt, wasn't it? And um, so, I, so I think essentially the, uh, the all of the uh, the madness of the pandemic world of the future of what's happening with comics, you know, getting them printed and distributed and bought in, in the shops. Um, I think this was just a casualty of, of that, that, uh, it would have otherwise made it into print form, but, uh, but unfortunately became digital first and only in instead because of when it came out. Yeah. You know, yes. And I think it was between chapters three and four or might've been four and five of snake hunt. Um, uh, yeah, if everyone can go back three years, uh, there were all of these questions about, you know, how do we ship things? How does the world ship things if it's not safe for drivers who drive trucks or warehouse fulfillment employees who pack boxes to be there? Because, you know, back then uh, it wasn't clear how the coronavirus spread and what was going to happen. And, um, uh, you know, like the, uh, you know, the, the dollar books that Marvel was publishing true believers, they'd reprint fun key first appearances or first issues for $1. Um, that, that imprint, that publishing plan ended 
uh, I think right at the beginning of the pandemic, because all of a sudden, you know, if Marvel was going to publish anything, it had to be its most important things, not not fun reprints that were maybe getting new readers uh, into the into the books. So I have read over the years a few web comics where someone's doing three panels across or, you know, six panels across. Uh, haven't really read comics uh, where the the unit is like a normal comics page or if you're holding an open book in front of you, two pages. Um, cause I don't, I'm not interested in that experience. I want to hold a comic. I want to be able to bring it closer or further to my face. I, I, I like to know sort of in my spatial memory, if something's on a left page or a right page, if it's near the front of the book, the back of the book. And when it's, uh, just a bunch of rectangles on a screen and I'm just clicking, you know, my mouse to go forward or back, I, I lose my sense of that. And so, uh, uh, basically without exaggeration, these six issues are the first six whole comic books I have read on a screen. Mm. And, uh, certainly if, you know, if there had been some limited and hard to find and expensive, um, print version of this book that it kind of snuck out, I would have gone to eBay to find that to read before we recorded this episode, then, you know, make myself sit at the computer for even longer than I normally do. Um, <laughs> that said, uh, Mac Ray's art um, does look great on a monitor, uh, I suspect, because it's uh, native uh, digitally. Um, we should also pause for just a moment and clarify, because we've used a couple names. Um, the artist uh, of this series um, in Spy Hunter and Paperboy is Mac Ray, M-A-C-R-E-Y. And a 2014 series that he drew and uh, co-owns uh, at Image Comics. Um, same person, but uh, the name used there is Matthew with one T, Matthew Reynolds. Uh, and so, um, uh, and on Facebook, he seems to have both names, Matthew Mac Ray Reynolds. So uh, we can, uh, if we get to talk to him, we can ask about his uh, his nickname or his artist name. Um, do you want to talk more about the art style, Mark? Yeah. So um, his his style is sort of very it's very animated uh, in in terms of the the look of it, um, and it makes brilliant use of silhouettes. Um, sort of looking through his his sort of Facebook, you can kind of, he it sort of lays bare his um, his sort of the melting pot of his influences of uh, John uh, Buscema, Michael Golden, Darwin Cook, Don Bluth. Uh, well, this is me now adding sort of extra extra lenses on, but like the, the animation look of of Don Bluth. Um, and and I'm sort of put in mind of as well the animation style of um, the the film, the, the Iron Giant, um, sort of all coming uh, to, together to, to have a very sort of dynamic, um, very um instantly i guess recognizable and, and sort of um a, a sort of a pop a popping sort of style that that uh you know really jumps off the the page or the the screen in uh in this case what would, what would you add to to that tim um so uh yes uh absolutely um reynolds macray is is uh, particularly in the Mercenary Sea, this earlier series, 
um, so much use of silhouettes. And um, I would go as far as saying there are very few comics that look like how he is drawing both of these comics. So he's not just drawing, he's also coloring. And um, his colors are great because he uses color to remind you when he's shifting focus from one part of a scene to another, like the good guys sort of to the left, and then we cut over to the bad guys uh, on the right, or, you know, two hours later or the next day. Um, I do see an improvement in his uh, clarity of visual storytelling from the 2014 mm -hmm. Mercenary C to uh, Spy Hunter and Paperboy, and um, uh, I I wasn't seeing a lot of uh, cartooning in uh, the Mercenary Sea, and I was seeing a little bit of uh, and and I was seeing some more of it in Spy Hunter and Paperboy, where um, uh, the, the the kid, the Paperboy, right, his eyes are just a little bigger than sort of everyone else's, so he does look like a character from animation and not from comics. And there are a couple of reaction shots of other characters sort of in surprise where uh, Ray is, is slightly exaggerating, slightly, slightly, slightly uh, caricaturing sort of the face that he's already drawn. Um, what, what we haven't said out loud and what we need to say here is that Ray is not drawing outlines on all the characters. So if you think of traditional comics art, you know, the penciler draws like a circle and then the inker inks the circle and then the color artist colors inside the circle. And so the black outline acts as a lasso that keeps the color in. And uh, what Ray does is uh, I guess, I guess if you can draw sort of the look of Samurai Jack in your mind um, is no black outline. Now, occasionally he will put a color outline on one side of something as a highlight if there's like an explosion or a sunset, you know, yellow or red. Um, but he's dealing much more with shape and um, blocks, like the, the, the block or the shape of a gloved hand, the block or shape of the bare wrist next to it, the block or shape of the um, sleeved arm next to that, uh, the block or shape of all the shades, the, the shading, on the secret agent sort of behind that arm, you know, on the side of the nose, the side of the forehead, the side of the cheekbone uh, and the ear, and then another block or shape for sort of the rest of the face. And then this sort of block or shape for the hair. And um, I don't think a Mac Ray is uh, looking at the, uh, uh, the animator uh, Lottie Reiniger, uh, who made uh, a very, very early animated feature film in the 1920s uh, in Germany. Um, and it was a silhouette film. So there are no, there's sort of no details. Every character and every background element is just shown in profile and, and it's just silhouettes moving back and forth. This film is called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. It's a very famous, feature length animated film. Uh, it's not the first ever made, but it's the oldest surviving one. And if you think Snow White is the first animated feature film, that is incorrect. Um, but I do think that Ray's art is looking 
beyond comics to maybe the design choices of Alex Toth, who certainly worked in comics, but also uh, Shadow Puppets, which is why I mentioned a silhouette film uh, like The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And also um, his art reminds me of cut paper, uh, cut paper art, which which again is related to, to silhouette um, to silhouette work or, or shadow theater, where um, Ray is uh, so concerned with the layers of uh, a, a person and their silhouette in the foreground, another person a little bit smaller and their silhouette or not silhouette, right? If we can actually see them a little bit further back, some trees a little bit further back, and then like the water line and then the silhouette of a boat beyond that. And then like a mountain or a cloud way beyond that. And because he's not using outlines and because he's using a lot of flat colors and because he's using a lot of silhouettes, he's adding a lot of atmospheric perspective into his uh, into his color where things that are further away have a little bit of a haze in front of them, right? If it's a daytime scene, a little bit of a blue haze. If it's a sunset scene, a little bit of an orange or yellow haze. Um, and you have to be really good to draw with less detail and with no lines to be able to clearly arrange all of your elements so that they're clear. And um, maybe a good example here, uh, Mark, I don't know if you have this available to go bigger, but we can see it right now. We can see it right now at this moment is the, is the cover to issue three or even the bottom panel of the cover to issue one, where uh, cover to issue issue number one, right? The spy, the, the car, the interceptor is in front of another silhouette, but you can tell what its shape is, right? And every element on that panel, right? The bullets that are chopping up the road, the car, the pursuing motorcycles, the helicopter, the building in the background, the road itself, the um, uh, streetlights, right? Um, these things are all very carefully arranged. And I think you, I think someone who's young or if I were, if I were young and I looked at this and I wanted to break in comic into comics and I was getting better at drawing, I might look at this and say, well, there's not a lot of detail. This guy isn't very good, but that's not, that's not what's going on here. Um, one has to be really talented to be able to arrange all of these elements. And, and I think Ray does a better job in Spy Hunter and Paperboy. I think he's made some improvements in this regard. There, there are a couple of moments in the Mercenary Sea where I'm looking at a panel and I'm thinking, okay, I think I know who everyone is here. I think I know where we are. Some of these silhouettes are a little similar to each other, or some of the elements are getting a little close to each other and a detail like someone holding a prop is a little bit small and I'm getting a little lost in what in following the story. And except for sort of two very small moments in uh, Spy Hunter Paperboy, I followed the story uh, all the way through and um, uh, and, 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 and enjoyed it. That sounds like a good segue into talking, uh, into having a little plot, plot briefing and hearing about actually what the story is all about. Plot Breakdown, Spy Hunter, Paperboy. Agent Bowman is Spy Hunter, Super Spy. 
Johnny Martinez is Paperboy. He's an orphan living off the grid in Vista Del Mar, California, working as a Paperboy to get by. It's the summer of 1964, and in Minsk, USSR, Agent Bowman has stolen a cargo truck containing a secret prototype car from Colonel Olga Sokolov, and he makes his getaway over land, sea, and air back to California, all the while pursued by the Russians. Back in Vista Del Mar, Johnny has stumbled upon Merlin, spy hunter's radio contact, who has been fatally wounded by a Russian assassin. The paperboy is the only one who can help Bayanta by getting his new rendezvous location to his support crew with the help of his friend Chief, a salty sea dog with a boat and a shotgun. Bowman's team are off the coast of California waiting to rendezvous with him. However, they're being jammed by a Chinese submarine. It's a four-way collision as paperboy and the chief arrive at the spy hunter boat with the Chinese sub and a pursuing Russian assassin. Our heroes fend them off just in time for Bowman to arrive with a spymobile in the cargo container of a transport chopper. The team briefly catches its breath as Bowman shows Johnny his secret high-tech underground base. But before long, they're on the road again, being pursued by the Russians and Chinese. The Reds ultimately perish in a kinetic Mad Max-style road combat sequence, defeated by our real American heroes. After that trial by fire, Paperboy and the Chief look to be primo candidates to join Team Spy Hunter. Yo, Joe. I mean, let's go Spy Hunters. What a wonderful uh, plot breakdown, uh, plot briefing, excuse me, Mark. I do think, uh, uh, I would love to, can you do that again with the Spy Hunter music in the background? <laughs> because, um, and and something that is, um, apparent early into these these six issues is that this is much more a spy hunter story than it is a paperboy story uh when when there are crossovers in comics you know when uh you know green lantern and silver surfer team up you know there's a marvel dc special something like that or just when marvel and dc sort of all of the characters uh meet up in those in those crossovers those intercompany crossovers there's often a very clear effort to sort of go 50-50. You know, like, okay, yeah. we're gonna go to we're gonna go to the Batcave, but we're also gonna go to uh Avengers Mansion for the same number of pages. And, you know, Darkseid shows up, but so does Thanos. Mm -hmm. And this is very much a spy story. And yeah. um there is very little of delivering papers, although. <laughs> The paper boy does once or twice get to throw something with great accuracy to further the story and give us a bit of action. Throw something that is not a paper. Um, and to the extent that there is no story in the Spy Hunter uh, video game, and, and I'm really just paying attention to the original Spy Hunter video game. If uh, I think I played Spy Hunter 2 once or twice, uh, I never played Super Spy Hunter, and I certainly haven't played um, uh, what's the one? Uh, yeah, in in uh, 2006 for sort of the next generation game game consoles like PlayStation Two. There's this game called Spy Hunter Nowhere to Run, uh, which has Dwayne Johnson both on the box and also in the game, uh, and 
not just in the game doing the voice, but uh, as an actor doing all the performance capture for his character in that game, right? It's like, well, there wasn't going to be a, there, there wasn't a movie, but they sure wanted there to be. Um, um, okay, so as much as there is no story in the original Spy Hunter, right? You drive and you take out the bad guy cars. And if you drive for long enough, it's no longer sort of temperate. It's like desert. And if you drive for long enough, it's no longer desert. It's uh, winter. Uh, it's like Arctic. The, there's white all around you. And then if you drive for long enough, you're a boat. <laughs> and that's it. It's just those four levels over and over and over. Sometimes there's one big road. Sometimes the road is sort of split on the left and the right, and you can either be on the left or the right, but they're both going straight up, straight up in this infinite um, scroll. So um, besides you know, using your weapons and taking out the bad guy cars and trying not to get run off the road, um, in the original Spy Hunter game, except for the marquee art, the, the, the painting with the logo sort of on the top front of the game and the side uh, art uh, where there's this, you know, handsome ca Caucasian guy with cool hair who's like holding the steering wheel and looking at you and also a woman. And I guess they're the spy hunters, right? And they don't have, they don't have names. We don't know who those people are and we don't know what they want except shoot the bad guy cars or evade the bad guy cars. Okay, so... Hama creates this whole world of the spy hunter in this miniseries. All right, now Paperboy, there isn't um, much of a story, but similarly, there's a goal, right? In the Paperboy video game, you want to deliver papers to the subscriber houses and um, hit some targets on the non-subscriber houses and not get hit by cars and not run into walls and not get stung by <laughs> tiny swarms of bees because you're taking too long. Uh, you just want to deliver your papers with accuracy. Um, but we don't know the kid's name. And uh, I think we do know the name of the town or the street. I forget. I think it's like on the second screen after you put in your quarter. Um, but to the extent that Hama is combining these two, I guess I'll say the word brands, this is very much 80% Spy Hunter and 20% Paperboy, because there's two or three sort of small references in the miniseries to the kid being a Paperboy and delivering papers and thinking about his route and picking up a second route because he needs to earn more money or being worried about missing his deliveries tomorrow because he's about to be a spy. Um, but what, what, what I'm spending a long time getting at is um, you can imagine the world of the spy hunter video game going a step further where you you do one or two more things besides just drive and we do see uh at the end of the series a couple panels which look just like the video game and thank goodness but we don't see the sort of visuals of the paperboy video game in this comic book miniseries yeah. we don't see the suburbs we don't see a barking dog we don't see a drunk man or like are Hearst trying to mow you down. There's no training course, like obstacle course. It's not, we're not worried about crossing a busy street and a car hitting us. Um, and I feel a tiny bit like this thing that I love got left out. Um, but 
I think whatever um, assets Hama was given, you know, like I'm, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to take a guess that Larry Hama didn't play either of these video games in the eighties, or if he did, it was once or twice. And in 2020, 2021, when he was writing this, he didn't remember. Right. So I'm going to guess that his editor um, sent him some uh, cues or some links or some JPEGs. Hama did some research on his own, um, brought in some stuff from, you know, the spy hunter game as much as you can. Uh, and then just ran with it. It's like, okay, I'm going to make a, a spy story. I think when I had lunch with him, I said, after he said the title and I laughed out loud and I said, wait, like the video games. And he said, yeah. And I said, what does this have to do with those? And he said, nothing. <laughs> I said, it might've been, I said, Oh, Spy Hunter, I can understand, but Paperboy, how do you combine these? What does this have to do with Paperboy? And then I think he said, nothing. And then he described this kid and he said, well, I, you know, I made this homeless kid without parents and, you know, he gets pulled into this world. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a Larry Hama concept. Sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Yeah. And, and just to sort of put a nail on the head of one of those aspects that, um, it, it was a nice touch and sort of did, t did take me slightly by surprise that um, when it did happen, that there were these overhead moments uh, in, in that final issue where they have this grand, um, you know, ch chase sequence and they do have this, this very spy hunter uh, moment of the video game where, where you do have several panels of, uh, of yeah, kinetic car driving action of uh of, of racing and uh, knocking, not uh, knocking into um, other cars and and all of these kind of things, uh, just like uh, the the game. And it took me, I think it was only probably only actually on my second read that um, when I saw that, and I was like, oh, hold on, hold on, what have we got going on here? <laughs> oh man, when I when I finally got to issue six and I saw those, I turned the page or I clicked over to the page and I saw the panel or two that matched the POV of the video game, I smiled and chuckled and said, thank you, God, uh, <laughs> out loud, because I really wanted that in issue one and was figuring by now we weren't going to get it because similarly, we hadn't seen a kid delivering newspapers you know, in the suburbs. This series... Not only is it the best G.I. Joe story you've never read. And, you know, and Mark and I, Mark and I are being a little cheeky when we make that claim because um, there are some characters here where you could sort of as an analog swap them out and put in a G.I. Joe character. And, uh, you know, maybe it's more like because I, I don't really see I don't quite see an analog for Cobra. So maybe uh, this is the best um, G.I. Joe special missions <laughs> story arc you've never read because you know so much of marvel's special missions was not about cobra but was about sort of other kinds of bad actors in uh spies and you know espionage and intelligence and 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 war um i do want to i do want to go back to just um uh one quick uh visual uh cue um a few minutes ago you had the um sort of the maybe the box art or the, like the instruction art for Paperboy, uh, which is a like a redrawn version. Yeah. So although the iconography of 
the video game is not in this uh, comic. And and for that matter, the kid uh, that we see here in this drawing is definitely younger than the kid protagonist of the comic. And, you know, in the comic, he doesn't have a baseball cap on, much less backwards. Anyway, um, but if you see how he's throwing this newspaper here, and then Mark, you go back to your slide, which has the cover to issue one, uh, one of those panels, Mac Ray is drawing that with our new character, with, you know, Agent Paperboy. And no one calls him Agent Paperboy except he <laughs> now. Um, As, so, so we were talking about this idea of uh, this being the best G.I. Joe uh, series you've, you've never read. And, and so, so what are the factors that, that make that up? So, so first of all, you've got Larry Hammer as the, um, as the writer, and he is writing in a very Larry Hammer way, um, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds facetious, but it's true. Um, and and we'll get onto that maybe in a in a in a second. And then we've got uh, Mac Ray um, uh, drawing as as well. And while we don't have uh, GI Joe um, characters within there, uh, you know, it, you, you do have an artist in Mac Ray who. Um, is a GI Joe fan and has got it sort of buried in his uh, in his DNA as well. So on screen at the moment, you've got a just something that he drew for fun, which is Destro uh, and and Storm Shadow recreation to issue. Uh, can you tell me the number there? Thirty eight. And and can I just add one quick sentence between the Mercenary Sea and Spy Hunter and Paperboy in Mac Ray's art and storytelling, you see someone who could well handle a G.I. Joe script. Absolutely. It's not It's not like he did a bunch of superhero stuff or um, like kids books with, you know, funny animal characters. And then he's doing Spy Hunter Paperboy and does a good job. Uh, you know, the art style in terms of color and no line doesn't look like G.I. Joe, but everything else about it could be G.I. Joe. So uh, Mark, please continue. So, so yeah, he's he's shared pictures of of Storm Shadow that he's done. Um, he said what uh, what an inspiration some of the Michael Golden art has been. Um, he's even shared some of his classified uh, collection that he's uh, been been buying. And if we if we're having a, a sort of an analog to uh, GI Joe issue one back in 1982, um, he was also working on a project called Vic. Falcon, which I believe was to be a creator-owned project with him and uh, Larry Hammer. So uh, it didn't come into fruition, but I understand that they were working on it and, and for, for a while. And if you squint your eyes at, at this, um, you, you can kind of see in the way that uh, Fury Force um, birthed G.I. Joe uh, for, for um, Larry Hammer that... Um, I think Spy Hunter was was somewhat born from uh, the the work that uh, Hammer and Mac Ray were doing in terms of coming up with their their project for Vic Falcon. Can I can um, I also throw in three other uh, sort of maybe not influences but things that are in the ether? Mm. Uh, this this is conjecture, but looking at these characters and and thinking about this milieu, right? Um, you have said James Bond already, but this is very much Hama, you know, making a kind of James Bond mega story. Um, 
But this also looks back to um, Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon, right? Newspaper strips um, and Johnny Quest, uh, where you have this kind of adventure with uh, a kid or kids and grownups. And it's international, not just in sort of where you go, but the 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 antagonists um and you have you know uh land and sea and air sort of travel and action okay back to you mark <laughs> yeah and and sort of you squint at some of the characters and they you know they you could imagine them being gi joe characters uh or or characters from jaws <laughs> um <laughs> in certain cases <laughs> And um, you know you've got these great villains that that they've uh, they've come up with, uh, and and with uh, Sokolov, uh, the the Russian the main Russian female lead, um, very much a deadly femme fatale. Um, you know she's a stunner, but uh, but she also will quite uh, <laughs> quite mercilessly shoot a civilian and leave them for dead on the side of a road if uh, they they get in her her way and who that's sort of the, coming up um who's the who's the female villain in nth man oh i don't know i don't know off the top of my head okay Tim. well it, uh, <laughs> that's well, on my to read part my to my 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 reread pile uh, i've read it twice but not in over a decade so apologies to our fans who just read it and are like yelling at the speaker like you idiots it's so and so um, but, you know, the first two panels of this and the, the slide you've got up right now, um, this this miniseries is also in the way that Nth Man is a cousin to G.I. Joe. This series is another cousin to both of those. Absolutely. And right, please, please continue. Yeah, I mean, sort of into the like sort of crafting these strong characters, uh, the, the villains and the heroes uh, alike. Um, for what is essentially a you know an IP <laughs> this IP project, um, it seems it seems like a, an undeserved level of quality that that we're getting in terms of this this cracker of all of these brand new characters this this world that's being been created, um, uh, the 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 story and uh, the the art, and uh, I was touching on again sort of what makes this. What makes this the best G.I. Joe story that you've never heard of before? It's very much the the hammerisms that we that we see. So, uh, if we have a hammer time, hammer time. Uh, some some of the things that caught my eye here were, of course, uh, as on the screen, we've got a very strong female villain. We've got um, a diverse cast. Um, we have got. Um, uh, we've got the use of white phosphorus, which is a thing that I, I re really only know about from GI Joe, <laughs> and, and it typically it, al it also has shown up in Marvel's The Nam, true, which also has Larry Hammer's uh, involvement in it. But um, typically, when they use white phosphorus in the battlefield in GI Joe, there'll be some character sort of calling out that it's uh, that there's a UN convention that that means that you can't use it as a conventional weapon. Um, and they're and they they they're, they're a bit uh, they're using it a little bit willy nilly here, uh, and with with um, with no with no qualms. Um, well, it's, it's 1960. Yeah, it's 1964, which is 
pre-1980 UN convention restricting the use of uh, certain weaponry. So <laughs> they didn't have the same level of, uh, of bans in, in place. So uh, they, c- they can use it to their heart's content without, without worrying about the UN. Um, we've, we've also got the, uh, the Larry Hammer specific technicalities of weaponry that, that we are uh, so used to and, and love with, without too many uh, asterisks and uh, editor's notes about uh, the, the use of the, the weaponry. So you get, you get dialogue the likes of, your standard issue Makarov is no match for my full, full auto Stechkin with extended magazine. Which is just thrown into a battle <laughs> sequence. Um, uh, keep, keep going with your Hama-isms, because I'd did, like to muse on this as well. Did you notice, Tim, that the the boat was be was in a racetrack holding pattern as they were waiting to uh, hear from Spy Hunter? Yes, um, and that was a holding pattern that we had the C one thirty above Cobra Island uh, in right, the run up to issue three hundred. They also have satchel charges, which again is something I know, only know about from G.I. Joe, particularly those early issues. Uh, those are those things that you throw around a bear's neck when um, you're stuck up a tree. Um, and they and this here, here's a subtle one. They've got a high tech underground base with elevator access. <laughs> there must be more to this gas station than meets the eye. Uh, so. Um, something that I see that's um, a bit of a Hama-ism, this actually takes me back to the Wolverine patch miniseries that Hama wrote for Marvel a couple years ago, which is um, more than two, three or four or five factions uh, sort of chasing each other or converging and reacting and sort of compensating for each other, you know? So in this mini series, the, the, the Chinese adversaries, they drop out of the story for half issue or an issue at a time. Cause there's so much action going on between the Americans and uh, the Russians. And then the Russians sort of suffer a setback and then the Chinese show up again. Um, and um, Hama in in real life, Hama likes cars. You know, he he lives in New York where you don't need a car because mass transit is so good. But um, he has driven cool cars and owned cool cars, and he's written about this a little bit on Facebook. And you know, if you read all of GI Joe, two or three times a cool car shows up in in the Marvel IDW GI Joe run, and you think, oh, this is a guy who has liked a couple cars in his life, and maybe the main character of this miniseries or the MacGuffin of this miniseries is the really cool car. And Hama gives it some cool things to do and he lets the characters worry about it and enjoy it. You know, like note, note how it's, um, hmm. Um, and another thing that Hama does that's, that's very much happening in here is he is, um, He's aware of hierarchy, of military hierarchy, uh, sort of who's after who's after who for not doing their job, or who's in charge of who on this mission, or who has the real power because they're holding the weapon, uh, and and he's juggling, you know, three different um, national factions, 
And then there's this really wonderful um, mix of sort of how you choreograph and uh, think about and present for the reader as fun, fighting with um, weapons, like with firearms, and then also cars, right? Car chases, and also planes, and also helicopters, and also boats. And some of these are mixed, right? So, you know, there's this scene in issue four where there's a car and a plane in the in the cargo hold, right? And the plane is being the slow plane is being chased by the slow American cargo plane is being chased by two fast Russian jets. And they are going to overtake it and destroy it, right? And it's flying over the over the Arctic, right? So what do you do? Um and uh, as as a by the way, as a as a spy hunter video game, I really thought there was going to be an icy roads ahead quote level here where the car was no longer in the plane and it would be driving on the ice, even though that doesn't quite match what happens in the video video game where you're driving on the road and there's just snow around it. But anyway, um, and also <laughs> um, something that Hama does in a lot of his stories, Billy, Tyrone, um, uh, Kid Death in his creator-owned stories and bizarre adventures. Uh, to, to some extent, um, uh, John Doe and Alfie O'Megan in uh, Nth Man. Um, to some extent, uh, Jubilee and LCD in Wolverine. Um, but Hama is interested in the loner-empowered child. Mm. The sort of 12 to 16 year old who might get taken in by you know a ninja to train in his dojo in san francisco or the uh homeless uh orphaned paperboy in california who lives in an abandoned amusement park or maybe just an amusement park i'm not sure and who you know knows a like a sea captain who has a boat who is uh like ex-military um and then this kid gets pulled into this larger world and and we're really rooting for him and what i don't see nearly as much of of a kid character in a hama story is like the kid who gets kidnapped and then the grown-ups have to rescue the kid you know other writers do that in movies and tv and comics what i see in larry hama stories is uh kids who like become members of gi joe or who become members of the rashikage clan or who become members of team spy hunter and i think that's because you know hama is in his heart still a, a kid and he yeah. knows that everyone who's he knows that everyone who's reading this is still you know eight or 12 years old and like we all want to get pulled into the world of spy hunter and then manage it not just, you know, get thrown in a basket and put on the back of a truck and held for ransom. Yeah, the, the list of the examples of the, those teenagers with their with their sort of uh, el elder person sort of taking them under the, the wing, sort of a young Larry Hammer and the likes of uh, the likes of Wally Woods or, um, or. Or when he was younger, when Hama was uh, trained in Zen archery in new york because like that was a thing to do on wednesdays indeed 
All right. What are, uh, what are some other sort of topics uh, we can talk about besides like actual cool scenes or or bits of dialogue? Um, let me let me tell you. Let me point out a few I spy things, <laughs> little details yeah. I noticed because I'm almost almost loath to sort of give too much way of the way of the the actual story it's, itself. But just so so here's a cool thing. <laughs> Early on in issue one, on the side of a, a van just outside um, Paperboy's um carousel abandoned carousel where he he lives you've got muttley dastardly muttley there um on the side of a van which is a kind of nod to uh i guess mac ray working on uh the uh, rough and ready uh um series about a cart- cartoon uh animals uh own owns and published sort of under the warner brothers slash dc uh dc wing <laughs> the uh i was going to put, get to another um i spy yeah so issue one page one um a great little <laughs> easter egg there they talk about the origins of this uh supercar that they've uh, the russians have stolen that uh the bowman is stealing back and uh sokolov says we have gone to great lengths to purloin this vehicle, which was developed for a certain secret agent in the wetworks department of the British Secret Service. So it's quite funny that they're having a nod to uh, James Bond there, page one, issue one, uh, about uh, the origins of the car when uh, the origins of the video game were also that it was originally designed to be a James Bond uh, car. As a kid, even though I didn't know that the Spy Hunter video game had been an attempt to, had attempted to have a link officially to James Bond, knowing the Peter Gunn theme, not not knowing what it was specifically, but knowing that it was just a a spy thing, sort of somehow related to or adjacent to uh, James Bond, Spy Hunter always felt to me, and I think my brother, as James Bond-ish, because... You know, you see the 70s James Bond movies with this, you know, car that can do all these things. Um, uh, Yes, Hama's having uh, some fun here with this one uh, bit of dialogue. Another, My other bit of ice spying and hammerism almost as well is you've got these two pilots, uh, Trip and Dean, uh, who are piloting this C-119 transport, uh, which is very much like the pilots Payer, that's P-E-H-R, and Love It, who were from issue uh, 196 and more of G.I. Joe, who who were these transport uh, drivers of the, uh, the same sort of transport uh, plane uh, as used here. Um, uh, they they were transporting uh, the Joes to Sierra Gordo, sort of under uh, undercover, I guess, under using uh, using a non military contractor there to to sneak into the into the country. So uh, I wonder, yeah, if these characters Trip and Dean and Pear and Lovett um, are are from a real world inspiration of uh, someone that uh, Hammer is familiar with. I think it's either that or uh, characters from a movie. Did you notice that in, uh, is it issue? I forget if it's issue, I think it's issue five. uh, The one with the flashback where uh, Spy Hunter, our main character is uh, is describing how he was in uh, combat 
and uh, he's uh, his two compatriots who survive that mission are Heath and Morrow. So that's Hama naming those characters after friends of his, Russ Heath and Gray Morrow, who were both great comics artists. And and yeah, so I mean, it's it's good that you mentioned that as well because I actually I left out from my prop, plot breakdown to keep it super. Uh, tight and focused, you know, get in a lot of action and events of six issues into uh, into a, a very short summary. But uh, it's a good point that in this issue five, there's this extended um, extended uh, flashback sequence, which essentially gives uh, the um, origin stories for. Um, by Hunter, essentially, that you, you've, you're five issues in. You've you've been thrown right at the deep end, and and um, as as his Hammer is want to do, he's isn't he's not going to um, waste precious time with too much exposition when when he can he can throw you in in the action on page one, and and you can catch up um, as you go. Um, so so it's interesting that they have this uh, this sort of. Uh, pause in uh, and this, this sort of quieter moment in uh, issue five, where you do get to to sort of find out more about the the origins of Spy Hunter. I guess uh, not not unlike uh, not unlike Johnny Martinez, he's sort of coming coming from uh, a, you know an orphanage, so so he's seeing that um, uh, he's he's got a lot more in common and a lot more uh reason to have empathy with uh johnny once you kind of understand that uh that shared background something that we i think is sort of assumed but we didn't say it aloud in how this feels like a larry hama story is that there's a lot of action and there are moments of seriousness where someone is understanding the stakes of how dangerous, you know, someone's chasing us and their, their firepower is superior or, you know, can't let this um, MacGuffin fall into the hands of the uh, adversary. Um, but the tone is, is pretty light and the pacing is fast. And yeah. I guess if you have to sort of mush that down into one short word, it's fun. Uh, this is a really fun, you know, action spy story. And not only does it feel like a G.I. Joe story that that wasn't or that could be, and and I I don't I know this, I know everyone considers this a compliment, but I don't mean to imply that, you know, comics can only be elevated if they become movies, because movies and comics are different art forms and they have different strengths uh and and modes, but this very much feels like you could just hand this to uh, a, a film director and say, make this movie. Don't add three characters and seven locations. Just make this movie. And it would mm. be live action or animated. And it would be very fun and uh, satisfying. Yes, absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if the intent if the intent of actually making this was to try and generate some new uh, creative ideas and IP that could be exploited in another medium, um, I think that they absolutely succeeded in 
in that as as a potential uh, objective um you you could as you say just just make this into a film without t- changing a huge amount at all and it would be uh it would be incredibly exciting and fun uh, uh you know spy movie or action movie what else did you want to touch on tim um i wanted to uh um tip my hat to a decision that pat brousseau made as letterer here the word balloons don't have black outlines because without them they agree with the art style because the Mm. characters don't have black outlines and and uh brousseau uh did this in uh in the mercenary sea as well um if you look at any word balloon in either of these two series it's not a perfect oval it's not a smooth curve it's a little bit uh it's a little bit jagged it's a little bit wobbly and i didn't know what that was for when i was reading the mercenary sea and i thought that it was a little bit much oh oh in the mercenary sea there are there are outlines but they are in a light gray um and i think what it's doing, not having perfect uh, ovals, but having very slightly uh, sort of like almost hand-drawn ovals. I think what it does is it keeps them from being distracting. It makes them a little bit organic. Uh, It makes them sort of not float on or sort of just above the artwork. Um, And uh, I also wanted to uh, tip my hat to editor Michael McAllister who put together a really good team here. You know, it's easy to look at Hama's uh, six issues now that we've read them and we've already said we like them and say, oh, Larry Hama was a good person to pick to write this. Um, And many, many great writers could come up with a fun concept for six issues mashing together these two video game properties that have nothing to do with each other. But But I think handing this to Hama and then teaming him up with Mac Ray, uh, you know, Hama has said, because, uh, you know, we always think of him as a writer and occasionally as a penciler, but he spent many years uh, first at DC briefly and then at Marvel as an editor. And he has said, I always thought the job of an editor was to pick good talent and stay out of their way. Yeah. Uh, to trust their judgment. And I think when he said that, I think he was even sort of paraphrasing Archie Goodwin's editorial philosophy. And I don't know that either of them invented this uh, editorial philosophy. Um, but, uh, you know, this series, it doesn't look like a lot of other comics. And, you know, I don't, it must be hard to be an editor and to find someone to do something that, maybe with Hama's sort of concept has such a strong creative vision and potential for such a strong sort of visual style. But can you imagine how hard it is? It's like, okay, I'm an editor. Got to find an artist who is available and interested and reliable, like they need to finish it, and talented. And, you know, comics don't pay all that well. So I got to find someone who will work for this rate and... And then someone who has to juggle all the balls that Hama throws. Because one of the things that um, it's it's a Hamaism that we haven't pointed out yet. Um, this series is full of gear and vehicles. 
very specific vehicles. It's not just like a car from the 60s. It is a very specific car that the Russians used to um, that they that they sort of invented and customized uh, to transport um, uh, political leaders, right? Or a very specific kind of submarine resupply station, like a floating submarine fix-it uh, uh, station, um, and very specific guns and heavy armament and planes and helicopters and, you know, sort of the only, and, and then Ray uh, the spy hunter vehicle, which I don't know how much he invented it or changed it from the versions that have been in the video games. Um, so um, I think McAllister uh, as editor had uh, really good taste here and or got really lucky. And um, man, I so wish this was available as a, a soft cover because I feel like it's a little bit of a hard sell because the title is confusing. Wait, you mean like the video games? Um, but I think <laughs> once you flip through it, you're like, oh, this looks cool. And then this is a book I would love to hand sell at my store, you know, like pick it up, show the cover, open it up, and then give the one sentence description. Um, I I yeah. put on a picture on on screen there just to illustrate your point that you made earlier there about the specificity of vehicles. So so that it's not it's not just the Bauman's crashing through cars in uh, Minsk um, as he's being chased by this uh, armored uh, vehicle behind him. He's plowing through Skoda's, Zills, and Trabants <laughs> as he's uh, as he's going. Uh, there uh, there there are two or three. Not even scenes. I guess one's a scene, and sort of little little moments or interludes where um, I think Ray's storytelling could be a little clear. Uh, here on page three of the first issue, this is panel four, and it might be much clearer as Mark is presenting it because we're so zoomed in. Um, I thought Bowman was tossing a grenade, and I wasn't sure why it was going back. I thought, oh, is he? going to blow up the thing behind him. And I turned the page and there was no explosion and no one says anything about what he just tossed. And then I thought about it for a moment and I realized he's tossing his hat, I think. Yep. Yep. I think and, he's wearing a cap and he's, his cover's been blown. So he takes off his hat and chucks it. Yeah. So, um, uh, so um, could be clearer and um, uh, issue two, Pages four and five, uh, and here we're looking at page five, um, this scene where there's a, a car passing another car. And um, I thought this could be a little clearer. Uh, and I think some of this is, some of this is the silhouettes or the lack of uh, detail, but I think more of it is um, sort of when Bowman and his car are facing left or when they're facing right, so in the top panel, they're going to the right. And then the next panel, they seem to be turning around. And then in the third panel, he's now facing left, which suggests he's he has successfully turned around. And then in the next panel, I can't quite tell. To, okay, I think he's turning around again. So is he? Yeah, I, I, lost, I mean, this I specific. Little, I lost a little of the thread of sort of which way he's trying to go to get away from the cars that are chasing him. 
Yeah. So so on the top on this top panel, he's bursting out of the back of this this truck and driving away. But then he goes into this power turn to do a one eighty around, and then he turns around and and shoots past the truck that he's just come out of the back of on the on the bottom plant panel. And I think the the thing that looks a little bit confusing about this page as a as a whole is that panel one as he's coming out of the truck and panel the bottom panel panel five as he's driving away he's facing the same direction but the truck that he's passed is facing uh, a different direction so it's a little bit a little tiny bit confusing but i i i i've completely uh followed that one uh this this page is actually the one uh one after uh oh, sorry one that precedes a, a pe- the page that had probably had the biggest impact on me uh, reading this uh, this series, the biggest sort of shock moment is that uh, Bowman, Spy Hunter, has saved this uh, civilian, and uh, Sokolov uh, just uh, finds her, yeah, uh, an unnecessary distraction and shoots her uh, by the side of the road. And as their armored vehicle drives away, they it leaves tread marks in the road as as it sort of paints uh her blood across uh across the road it's quite uh quite a shocking and and impactful moment in the in the course of the series yeah both in terms of story because we haven't realized sokolov is so cruel and efficient but also in terms of visuals and ray mac ray uses silhouettes to great effect so this very powerful, very legible silhouette of the shot being fired in panel two, of the shot being received in panel two, right? This, this character who's tense and in control, and then this character who's losing control as they lose their life, and then that dot of orange-red uh, in, uh, sorry, did I call it panel two? It's panel three. And then this dot of orange-red in panel four, uh, which makes both the the pool and also the the trail um, and then you get a little bit of fun tech uh, in the bottom two panels with the cool buttons and the cool TV screen on a, a spy car in 1964. There's uh, and then there's one more sort of art thing that I wanted to point out. If can I give you a, another page to find um, issue three, page 20. And uh, and here's here's another moment. Um, this is something that uh, I found a tiny bit distracting when I read The Mercenary Sea and I was sort of cautious about coming into Spy Hunter Paperboy. And I'm happy to say only happened like three times and and wasn't really distracting. It's sort of this very mild reaction I have where um, artist Mac Ray is often reusing assets uh, from panel to panel or page to page. He's doing some, he's doing a little bit of copy and paste when um, something hasn't changed or moved uh, in one panel to a the next panel or a later panel, or sometimes he's sort of quote zooming in the camera, or like a bunch of background elements uh, stay the same, and then a couple foreground elements like characters move a little bit from one panel to the next, um, and uh, so that happened a little bit more in the Mercenary Sea than I would like. And I certainly understand when you draw comics, monthly comics, anything you can do to make it go faster, you know, copying, pasting, reusing elements is fair game. 
if I notice it, sometimes I'm distracted and I, I would prefer the artist to have redrawn a thing and try to draw it the same, even if they're sort of tracing it uh, from a previous drawing. Um, what, what happens here is, um, uh, what's, what's this character's name? It's not Quinn from Chief. Jaws, but Chief. Thank <laughs> um, Chief, uh, Chief realizes that this uh, agent that they thought they finally just killed, who's sort of been hard to kill, um, snuck away from where they're looking and is stealing his boat. And he, he says, he's hijacking my Betty. Dang, at least I'm insured. It was time I got out of that loser charter business anyway. And what Ray has done here is he, A, is reusing a panel of Chief's face from a previous page. And B, he's zooming in. And I don't think this is the expression or the, the straight up and down sort of head spine pose of someone whose beloved boat is being stolen when they thought they were safe because they just killed that, that bad guy. I think there'd be more of a, you know, arm reaching out or both eyes open or his mouth would be open and he's yelling, you know, like it's sort of this, hey, you come back. Oh, damn it. You know, the fist on the railing, uh, twisting his spine as he's taking a step to sort of run toward, but he can't, he can't jump in to go after the boat. And what we have here is uh, just a calm, a little bit of tense, tense tension, little tense close up of a guy frowning. And I don't think that's commensurate with like, he stole my beloved boat, even if he then says, well, it's okay, it got stolen. I think this, this panel needs a little bit more uh, sort of surprise and reaction. And, and again, this is two things. This is Ray, I think, uh, as quote, film director, placing his quote, camera in not the optimal place and B, uh, maybe making that decision because he can just grab an asset from a previous page and make it bigger or smaller. Yeah, makes makes perfect sense. Um, I'll just pause a second to try. Um, there's there's an there's another page where something similar is being done, which initially I thought, does this bother me? But then I thought it, it worked quite well. Um, and you thought it'll me. bother Tim. So in uh, issue one, there's this sequence where Paperboy stumbles across uh, one of uh, the place of one of the um, one of the places I think he's deliver delivering to on his paper route because uh, it's a bit a little bit about Paperboy <laughs> here and there, um, and, uh, and and he comes across Merlin who has been uh, sort of uh, tortured by uh, a Russian assassin, and there's this sequence where um merlin uh is is they're using essentially the same digital asset on this one page four times um um with a zoom out and also the use of uh i guess you know focus almost sort of the shifting of the pain of, of where they're they're looking at uh, and I thought I wondered to myself. Hmm, I wonder what th Tim will think of of this one. But but I personally, I thought it's quite effective because essentially this reveal is that Merlin, you know, has passed away. He is dead, and he is not moving. So it's in entirely right that uh, that you can use reuse an asset where you're showing someone um, completely still, and and by doing that, you're almost reiterating that point that this guy is no longer mo moving um you know 
has passed away. Tim? Uh, I sort of agree. I generally don't want artists to copy and paste, even if they're zooming in or out or sliding left or right. Um, so we've talked, we've been talking about this issue for a little while now. Uh, I think we could keep on going and, you know, you could almost do a page by page discussion of exactly what's going on because there is some, the, the art is great. The, the use of color for location and time of day and everything else is amazing. And, uh, the characters, as they're sketched out, their design, uh, feeling fully formed in terms of the the writing, um, is is top notch work, and, and the sort of the action sequences, like like the the the, the plane sequences in is it issue four maybe, um, top notch action throughout the six, the six issues. Um, so you know you there is a lot to chew on and talk talk about um here so so well, i think you know we'll have to we'll have to draw a clo- close somewhere tim is there anything else that you wanted to mention or should we sort of have our conclusion and, and maybe give it a score uh no we've uh yeah i was just i would just spend another half hour uh reciting you know some excellent lines of dialogue and picking a few panels where you know the visual storytelling is is particularly exciting or clear or the colors great uh so i'm i'm happy to wrap this up sooner than later yo cola not grape soda it's yo joage our yo jo cola score um, I don't know if there's a Paperboy Spy Hunter equivalent of a Yojo code, <laughs> but um, would it be? Well, cars run on. What are the liquids in the worlds of Spy Hunter and Paperboy? Cars run on gasoline. Special weapon in the Spy Hunter Interceptor is the oil slick. Uh, maybe the kid in the video game when he delivers papers comes home and has Gatorade or orange juice. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe you know Let's how many paper. How many papers have we delivered here out of ten? How um, many new subscribers? How many new subscribers <laughs> did we get on Easy Street? What is it? Medium Street. It's like Easy Easy Street, Medium Road, and like Difficult Lane. Um, how many new uh, How many new agents have we recruited to uh, to the team? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, for me, I th- I loved this to be honest, um, and. And I wasn't using hyperbole to say that this is the best Larry Hamlin G.I. Joe comic you have never read. Um, I would n- not hesitate this to recommend this to to anyone who is a fan of Larry Hamlin G.I. Joe. And p- potentially if you've been, uh, you're feeling slightly nonplussed by some of his, his other G.I. Joe work um, since his the golden days, um, I think this is up there with, with, with the best of what that he's, that he's done on G.I. Joe. So, um, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna maybe make it lose half a point because it's digital only, um, and, and I think that that would, you know, you've got is a consideration that's going to stop it from having full marks, um, and and that half point is probably going to take it down from a ten to a to a nine and a half. I love wow. this. Wow. I'm, I'm I'm happy to go high nine and a half. Wow. Um, 
I'm going to give it an eight, uh, which for me, if you're new to the show, listeners, is is quite high because uh, I'm I'm a grumpy comics reader. <laughs> um, yes, you normally this- take away one point just because you don't like the paper stock. So if there's no paper at all, exactly. what does that mean, Tim? Same, same thing as as you as you graded down because you couldn't read it as a printed object. And uh, similarly to you, I thought, oh man, there are some, there is a specific G.I. Joe fan reader who I chatted with very recently at Joe Fest, who said that uh, for him, G.I. Joe just hasn't sort of been it since issue 119. Uh, Hmm. And he's read a lot of G.I. Joe since then. And this person likes the Devil's Due G.I. Joe and doesn't like later Marvel Hama or IDW Hama. And I thought two issues into this, I thought, oh, I don't know if this friend of mine reads comics digitally, but he should definitely read this. Um, there are uh, there are some some very small things I have with the art. You know, we're looking right now at, at this uh, at, at all the covers and, uh, you know, just a little thing like. Um, you know, the covers to issues one and three and five have helicopters, and, but you can see the rotor blades, which feels like a like a, a tiny something is a little bit off about it because it feels like if you can see the rotor blade, it's sort of a moment frozen in time. But, you know, the rotor blades are going so fast. If you think of movies or, I don't know, real helicopters, like you can't see the rotor blades unless they've like set down and they're the engines are off anyway um let me phrase it differently mac ray draws the car and the action with such verve right issue three like that wants to be the cover of the soft cover collection you know and hama comes up with such a well-balanced story that is satisfying as each of the six chapters introducing um new characters who are familiar in a familiar world right this is a pastiche this is a a james bond spy type story but it's also a gi joe special missions and nth man kind of story where we're worried about you know the russians and and getting from point a to point b um great action uh great characters um i like all of the supporting characters uh i'm i'm intrigued and shocked when uh, a couple of uh, smaller characters in this don't make it out alive. Um, there's uh, there's a, uh, the, the guy who steals the boat uh, doesn't do much in the story, but he starts to become this sort of delicious villain you love to hate because uh, <laughs> he, he keeps showing up. And uh, uh, the ending, we have alluded to part of the ending, uh, good ending, very good ending. And there's another sort of little bit of ending on the last page that we have not alluded to, which is also a good ending. So this is a really well-balanced, satisfying script with really satisfying, uh, very, very handsome and attractive art and color uh, lettering. It's the whole package. I, I very happily give this an eight. Excellent stuff, Tim. Um. So as we're sort of coming to a conclusion, um, I'll just remind you that uh, this, if you're new to Talking Joe um, because of Cobra Convergence or for whatever other reason, uh, maybe you've just Googled uh, Spy Hunter Paperboy and we've been not the top results. 
um, it's something that I want to revisit and see if that happens. Um, so, uh, you know, if you are new to us, we normally have an episode every Thursday uh, and we are talking G.I. Joe comics, um, you know, have explore of our back catalogue. We've talked to a lot of the greats like Larry Hammer and uh, Rod Wiggum and, uh, you know, in terms of G.I. Joe legends but but also we've had detailed coverage of uh, all of the uh marvel issues starting with issue one running all the way through to uh, larry hammer's uh issue 300 and we also delve into the devil's due era and all the while as we go we are looking to talk to the creators and get a bit more of a deep dive insight into the creative process that goes behind these uh comics um, so next and we time, look forward, and we look forward in November to uh, the return of Hama's Real American Hero with three hundred one. Certainly, yeah. So we are definitely looking forward to three hundred one when that picks up. We're looking forward to the Duke miniseries, the Cobra miniseries, and uh, we've also been reading uh, Void Rivals, the new series from um, Skybound, which is launching the shared Energon universe. Um, so there's lots to, uh, look forward to from, uh, Talking Joe. Um, so where can you find us? We're in, uh, you can find us from talkingjoe.co.uk. That is the website and which has links to all of the places. Uh, we are on Facebook, a Facebook group, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, um, and you can get all of the, uh, episodes on your favorite podcast platforms as well as generally on youtube as well so look forward to seeing more of you there also on patreon so you can be like one of the cool kids richard sam jay bill christopher justin rob brian and shane who are getting early access to episodes as well as exclusive content and a nice satisfied glow knowing that they help keep the lights on for all of our subscription charges to keep these things going um and tim can be found in various places as well tim what are those places i write about gi joe at my blog a real american book.com i've been writing a big history book on gi joe for many years and uh, the blog is where I put stuff that won't fit in the book or write about G.I. Joe news or G.I. Joe conventions. Uh, I own a brick and mortar comic book store in Somerville, Massachusetts. That's Hub Comics and unrelated to G.I. Joe. Uh, with my creative partners in New York, uh, we have a YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions, which is video essays on TV and film, uh, heavily researched and uh, Hopefully you'll find them smart and funny. Very good. Um, and as a reminder, as well as part of Cobra Convergence, you can find out, uh, you can see all sorts of cool content from uh, other Cobra Convergence, from other people joining in with the event. So head on over to hcc788.com to see the Cobra Convergence line up look here we are thursday july 6th that's us talking joe uh next up 
on Friday, July 7th, will be a real American, Brian. I hear that he's got some very good jingles as well as Go Figure coming up as well. There's Snoover's Corner Cafe, the Full Force podcast. I'd give that one a skip. I hear that, you know, it's awful. <laughs> Friend of the show, uh, Chris McLeod, doing his uh, his weekly uh, news roundup on Saturday, along with Pat, not Picard, Stuart. Uh, it's essential uh, watching or viewing or listening uh, for, for if you want to keep up to date with all of the latest G.I. Joe news. And it continues on all the way through the month to the end where there will be a wrap up on July 31st. So if you are a G.I. Joe fan, uh, there'll be all sorts of fan events, content through the week, uh, through the well, through the month. Uh, and hopefully you'll discover some uh, interesting new stuff there. Um, so I think we're done, Tim. And what do we say when we're done and we're wrapping up? Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast! Excellent. That just got rid of any of our new viewers. They're not coming back. <laughs> Laters. The Convergence is back. Cobra Convergence 7 is about to begin. This July... Cobra will again turn the world blue. Cobra Convergence is an annual month-long event when G.I. Joe fans from around the world come together to celebrate G.I. Joe's enemy, Cobra. 31 days, 38 presenters, including podcasts, YouTube channels, toy photography, and more. The G.I. Joe fan community will present special Cobra content every day in July. Sergeant Slaughter's Slaughterhouse, Woodman, 29, HCC 788, Sparkster 1701, it's Chad, what's on Joe Mind, Cobra Island, a toy kind of move, Talking Joe, Go Figure, Real American Brian, Snooba's Corner Cafe, The Full Force Podcast. Go to hcc788.com for a calendar of presenters. Follow them all so you don't miss a single episode. This year, Cobra has deployed their spies, infiltrators, and double agents to destroy G.I. Joe from the inside. You never know who could be a Cobra agent. The Skull Review, Joe Motion Videos 82, codenamed Cujo, Half the Battle, Peg Warmer, Jay Bartlett, Chaplin's Assistance Motor Pod, Toy Connection, JLS Comics, Action Robot Punch, Audible Interlude, Order of Battle, Yorktown Joe. Cobra's Espionage Division is looking for more spies and saboteurs. You can join the wave of blue and march with Cobra to world domination. Check hcc788.com to learn how you can join. The Joe on Joe Podcast, my side of the Laundry Room, Rob Vegas, Steve Photo Viper, G.I. Jober, Ratface 44 Review, Island of Misfit Toys Collector, Treasures for Trigger, Anything Joe's, Toy Domination, Codename, New 202, Articulated Points, Podcast from the Pit, Agent Chuckles, Cobra Convergence 7 kicks off July 1st and ends July 31st. The calendar is live at hcc788.com right now. Follow every presenter so you don't miss any vital communiques. See you in July. Kill!